Chapter Twenty One of From Mud to Mufti by Bruce Barron's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One: Going the Rounds, Mud and Monotony, Verdun Heroes, Thoughts on Shelling. The next day I began my work. The general had arranged for me to have a guide and to be taken to a regiment that was in front-line trenches to the right and in front of Newport. It was a bleak, gray, dismal day as we went down the long, monotonous, shell-pitted road towards Newport. What a dreary waste that country round the Ezer Canal is, particularly in all the wild, wet weather of winter. We went as far as we safely could in the car, and then walked a short way to the place where the regimental commander lived. He had a fairly large, well-built, subterranean dugout, where my guide explained all about me and what I wanted to see and do. It appeared that the colonel had been already rung up on the telephone about me, and he readily grasped the idea. He prepared to come round with us and show us over all his particular command. All through my many visits to the various parts of the stupendous battle line from Ostend to Gorizia, I have been particularly impressed by the willing courtesy shown by the different commanders whom I have had the pleasure of meeting. In spite of the strenuous lives they had to live, they always found time to do all that was possible to show me everything in their power, and were invariably most hospitable. Trench hospitality is a wonderful and touching thing. Every one of my official hosts would turn out extraordinarily good meals in my honor, and on many occasions I have known that this must have meant curtailing their own none too luxurious rations. The colonel got ready gave some orders, and then started to show us round. We followed close behind. I shall never forget that waterlogged, dreary waste near Newport. Vast, perfectly flat country, with long, mournful grass waving about in the cold wind under a lead-colored sky. We went along duck boards most of the way, occasionally passing groups of war-worn poilus, who were toiling at that everlasting necessity, the battle between men and mud. To these men the colonel would always say something, perhaps praise, perhaps criticism, but to those poor, cold, wet devils even a harsh corrective word of command must have been a relief. Those winter months on the Ezer were a triumph for our Belgian and French allies. We went on, and at last slushed our way into a series of muddy trenches. It is hard for those who have never seen those trenches to imagine the fearful conditions under which the soldiers lived no worse indeed than what our own army has had to contend with, but they were just as bad as you could want. There is so much marshland in these parts that to make anything but a sloppy bog for your home is nearly impossible. Dark days, mud, rain, danger, and death. When you add these ingredients together and multiply the sum by the length of a whole winter, you'll find it wants a lot of beating. And these were the soldiers, these were some of those amazing fellows who had stuck out so much. These were some of the wonders who had astonished the world by their heroic performance at Verdun. I looked at them all keenly and thought hard as I followed behind the colonel down trench after trench. Here were these splendid men in old dirty uniforms covered with mud, some sitting down on ledges at the back of the mud and sandbag parapet, and others standing about with their hands in their pockets, stamping their feet on the old worn duckboards to keep warm, while others again were occupied on their ceaseless watch for the enemy over the parapet. An English officer following their colonel round was an unusual sight. 
I was the first they had ever seen there, and they all looked with silent curiosity as I passed, and then muttered something amongst themselves. I don't know what they said, but if it had been me, I should probably have said, What's this blank fool doing mucking around here? I expect they said that. I hope so. It's human and friendly. I don't know many things more tiring than being shown round miles and miles of trenches. To begin with, you can't walk normally. You always seem to be stepping over things or stooping under things, added to which you have occasionally to do about half a mile in a bent-up attitude because the parapet is low. This latter procedure is advisable owing to a latent desire on the part of those Rhineland gentlemen to snipe your head if it shows. I got tired out that day, but I saw and learnt a lot. I scrambled about in various ditches known technically as communication trenches. I went on all fours into sundry dugouts or trench mortar emplacements. I slushed through hundreds of yards of dirty, marshy, shell-torn ground, tripped on old rusty barbed wire, in fact, saw those trenches thoroughly. We stopped for lunch at the dugout of a company commander, and there we sat round a low table, a survival of some mutilated home close by, and partook of a plain but very welcome ration lunch given to us with the utmost cordiality and hospitality after which a smoke and a removal of as much mud as one could. They are invariably a cheery and friendly crowd, these French officers, and there is invariably a happy family atmosphere in all French regiments. During this visit of mine to these Newport trenches there was very little shelling or violent interruptions of any kind, a little rifle firing and a little back area strafing, that is all. That form of amusement indulged in by artillery and known as back area shelling consists of lobbing nice, large, juicy shells over the heads of the trench holders way back onto some town, village, camp, or building, occasionally varying this by deluging a certain road so as to make it unattractive, if not impossible to use. Of the various forms of irritant which this war has possessed, I hate shelling most. Against one of those large flying umbrella stands in the shape of a fifteen-inch shell you can do nothing. It's mere delusion to think you are safe in a house, dugout, or cellar. These shells have a persistent and noisy way of penetrating anywhere with the almost inevitable result that you go out either bodily or in pieces. I can laugh, and have laughed, at the rattling splutter of machine-gun bullets against a wall when I have been on the other side. But when those mammoth howitzers start squirting those explosive drain-pipes over at you, I confess, my smile fades that boom, very soft in the distance, then the swirling, rotating, swishing crescendo overhead, the ghastly momentary pause as you see an earth fountain waft a cottage a hundred yards into the air, followed by a crash like a battleship being dropped into Olympia. No, no, I don't like it. These Newport trenches were comparatively quiet that day, but when the time came for us to retrace our steps along the sodden duckboards, I wasn't sorry. They were a clammy, horrible, depressing sight, and very reminiscent to me of those dark, dank trenches I used to live in before Messines. I looked back when we had gone about half a mile. Under the darkening, dreary, wet sky, the flat, war-torn country lay in a gloomy silence. The long, waving grass, a skeleton farm roof silhouetted against the lemon-colored light of the setting sun, and beyond the dark, hazy mystery of where those primitive trenches lay and where night after night, 
week after week, month after month, those muddy, weather-beaten, war-worn poilus forever held the line. End of chapter 21 Recording by Philip Gould